The Water Values Podcast, Session 158. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. have a great show for you today. We have J.P. Jolie of Waterworth who's going to talk with us about uh, essentially long-term financial planning, a lot of uh, issues, financial issues that water utilities face, how to deal with them, things of that nature. And it's a great interview, so uh, you're really going to enjoy this one. Before we get to that, though, a little housekeeping as we normally undertake at the beginning of each show. First off, if you'd like to support the podcast financially, you can go to the website, thewatervalues.com, click on the little PayPal button, and donations in any denomination are appreciated to help defray the cost of putting the podcast on. Also, thank you very much for those of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast. We picked up two more five-star ratings this year on Apple Podcasts, bringing us up to uh, 144 total ratings, 134 of which are five-star, and we have a review from late October that I hadn't gotten to yet. Brooke Craven says, awesome podcast. David, host of the Water Values podcast, highlights all aspects of water treatment, reuse, and more in this Can't Miss podcast. The hosts and expert guests offer insightful advice and information that is helpful to anyone that listens. Well, Brooke Craven, thank you so much for the five-star rating and great review that you put on Apple Podcasts. Much appreciated. Also, real quick, want to acknowledge that Thanksgiving is coming up in the U.S., so I hope for those of you who uh, are celebrating in the U.S., have a great and happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy and don't eat too much. So with that, uh, let's get to the feature interview with J.P. Jolie, who's going to do a fantastic job again talking about financial issues that water utilities face, how to pay for you know big projects, things of that nature. So here we go with J.P. Jolie. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelt. And here we go. Well, JP, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm really good. Thanks for having me. Uh, you bet. Could you start off by telling us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Yeah, so it's one of those little bit circuitous things in life where um, I'm trained as a computer engineer. and uh, But at some point, um, my wife and I moved here to Victoria and... Uh, rather than just jump right back into computer engineering, I decided to take it easy a little bit and just do some some little bit of consulting. And I ran into a fellow here who was working in the water industry. And, and you know, because I'm a fairly smart guy and I could pick things up quickly, I decided to help him out with a couple of projects. And one thing led to another. And I started becoming, uh, you know, because of my engineering background, I'm pretty good at math. And some of the um, the areas around financial management and rate setting particularly deals with a lot of data, a lot of math. I got pretty good at that and started building some fairly sophisticated models using Microsoft Excel and, and did one project after another and after another, and I never looked back from there. Uh, I'm now, you know, well 15 years into uh, doing pretty much the same thing. Uh, so I've become a fair bit of an expert in the whole area of water and wastewater financial management planning and, and rate setting. Yeah. You're in Canada. You're in Victoria, Canada. What do you, what, what's your business? What are you kind of doing now? Well, picking up from what I just said, uh, these Excel models became more and more sophisticated and fairly brittle. Anybody who's worked with Excel knows that it's hard to let alone work with complicated stuff of your own. 
um, and 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 not breaking the models, but uh, handing those Excel files over to other people is a is, is pretty much a no go. And our customers, um, you know, the people I worked with, were increasingly wanting access to those those Excel models, and so that led to one thing led to another. And uh, I have a business partner who who's who's been involved for some time. And he and I decided, you know, why don't we actually take those Excel models and implement them into something more robust, uh, you know, an online web-based tool that we could then um, give access to our customers knowing that there's no way they could break uh, those formulas <laughs> models. So that's, that was the genesis of it. Um, and we turned something that was looking more like consulting into something that's more like an online web-based tool like the kinds that you and I are familiar familiar with with everything else we do in life whether it's banking or whatever else and so our customers log in to Waterworth which is a, a, a sophisticated financial management and rate setting tool and uh, because it's fairly you know it's not a straightforward process um, there's a manual that's an inch and a half thick that explains how you approach water rates and so we provide not just the software, but we provide the services that go with it that, um, and, and we guide our customers into the use of the software until the point that, you know, some of them are becoming well enough versed in, in how it works that they're, they're running on their own now. But um, that's been a very important, successful part of our business is the services that we provide along with use of the tool. Yeah, so so you're providing financial services and financial consulting to utilities and others in the utility space, right? Yeah, although I qualify that, so um, I just want to be careful about financial services. So we don't, you know, we don't <laughs> help them get, you know, bonds issued, and and there's a lot of nuances to to the financial aspects. What we help them with is the financial planning. So it's looking well into the future, and most local governments have, for various reasons, not really looked past two or three years. You know, all the decision makers, which are the, the politicians, the, the elected officials, you know, mayor and council or boards, they're often driven by their, their election cycles. So they can be three years or so. And so they don't, they don't typically look that far ahead. But we know that when you're dealing with utilities like water and wastewater, um, big costs come along every once in a while infrequently, but they're huge. You know, building a water treatment plant can cost, depends how big the community is, but you're talking 10, even as much as $100 million dollars. So um, planning for that, it, it's, it's way better to plan ahead for that than to just kind of have it hit you in the face all of a sudden. Right, right. So long-term financial planning, long-term financial modeling. I, I agree with you that kind of the governance structures have a lot of uh, utilities that are governed by elected officials kind of in this, you know, short, short-term uh, horizon. Uh, what are some of the other just, you know, again, big picture issues for utilities and long-term financial sustainability, financial planning? Well, the, the, the single most difficult thing that, that municipalities across North America and not just in water and wastewater have been struggling with is the whole idea of renewing infrastructure. So, you know, we've, our communities have built big things in the past and they kind of figured, okay, that's it. We've got this big thing, whether it's a, you know, a, a rec center or a water treatment plant, and they forget that that thing needs to keep keep going perpetually. So, uh, you know, I forget what the exact figures are, but, you know, we're well into a trillion dollars of, of infrastructure deficit now across North America, which means um, assets that are deteriorating, whether it's bridges or pipes in the ground, 
and these things are crumbling and there just hasn't been any forethought to planning to renew those things. Um, and, and so, you know, that's that's really at the center of what we're trying to do with this tool is really encouraging people to look well into the future and plan ahead and think to those next generations and, and ask themselves, are they going to, you know, increase rates now to have current rate payers help fund those future replacements or are they going to leave that to the future generations? Um, it's a tough question, uh, but, it you know, by looking into the future, I think communities are now beginning to have that conversation. And you may, you may have heard the term intergenerational equity, uh, and that's a fairly, you know, that term is just recently coming into the conversation, uh, but it's all about that. What are we doing about the future generations and all of this crumbling infrastructure? Yeah, I want, I want to get to that. I want to get to that. But, but before we do... Um can you talk so anytime you are doing financial planning and looking at the future right there are unknowns and there's and, and trying to figure out what those are and plan for those can be difficult can you talk about some of the big unknowns that typical utilities need to to think about when doing this financial planning sure so nobody has a crystal ball that tells exactly what's going to happen however um you know, like how long will a piece of pipe last in the ground? And because it's out of sight, out of mind, it's really hard to know. But engineers have long used um, widely accepted uh, figures that they call estimated service life. So you take a, I don't know, you take a, a piece of ductile iron, for example, and, you know, the amount of time that pipe will last in reality, that very specific length of pipe, nobody really knows, but we know it can probably be in the range of 50 to 100 years. Um, and if ever there's a main break and they get the opportunity to dig the ground up and replace a segment of it, they can look at it and go, wow, that thing's in way better shape than we thought, uh, or, or the other way around. Um, but that tends to be the biggest unknown, is how long do things really last? Um, and if you don't know that, then you can't really plan. But, you know, we urge you to at least come up with a model and, and use some educated guesses to say, well, let's, let's at least work towards believing that the thing's going to last 40 years or 75 years, and let's model around that, and let's plan for that. And as the years go on, we can keep assessing and, you know, slowly over time take away the unknowns um, as we, you know, edge our way into the future the unknowns become, you know, the haze kind of clears and the unknowns become a little bit better known and the model improves because we can fine-tune and tweak it uh, to adjust for reality. So think about it as, you know, we're all driving down this road and there's a fog. And, you know, we could choose to, to steer the, the vehicle by looking, you know, 10, 20 feet ahead of us. And that thing's going to, you know, cause us to kind of swerve back and forth. Um, but if we can imagine what the road looks like way off into the future, you know, imagine even that the fog's not there. And I, I remember my dad teaching me how to drive on long prairie roads when I was a, a kid, and I was doing just that. I was just steering the car, just looking 20 feet ahead. But if, you know, once he taught me to look a mile down the road, uh, then driving becomes easier because you make fine adjustments, you know, as, with your arms. You don't even realize it, and you're, you're driving in a straight line. But, of course, there is a fog. And so it, that's what makes it more difficult, and that's why municipalities haven't bothered to try to think long-term because they can't really see out there. Yeah, yeah. So when, when, you, when you're doing this financial planning and you're kind of trying to uh, uh, set money aside for some of these big projects or reserve money, can you talk about the role of cash reserves 
and you know at what level again you know, it's it's imperfect but at what level are you kind of looking to try and establish those cash reserves so cash reserves play a pretty important part in terms of buffering um, and insulating the ratepayers from what are typically these these pretty large and erratic swings in costs. So imagine the costs for these utilities tend to be, the, you know, the big ticket items tend to be infrequent but pretty large. Meanwhile, we're trying to keep ratepayers on a steady course for what they're paying. So maybe a little bit of increases every year, but we certainly don't want the rates to swing up and down wildly. So the cash reserves pay play an important part in in buffering those swings. Now, in terms of capital reserves, uh, there's generally three important purposes for capital reserves, and they go like this. So the first one we might call working capital. So that's an amount of money that a municipality has um, in the bank that it can use during the course of a year to pay for capital projects all the while waiting for their receivables to come in. So you take a, a wastewater uh, service, for example, they may bill their customers annually. So one time a year you get your, your wastewater bill and you all the ratepayers pay. But during the course of that year, that wastewater treatment or wastewater service may have a bunch of bills to pay. They have their st- staff salaries and they're replacing pipes and whatever else. So they have expenses. But meanwhile, they're waiting for those revenues to come at the end of the year. So uh, so one purpose of the cap- cash reserves is to provide a kind of a float. So an amount of money that you can use while you're waiting for receivables to come in. The second purpose would be for emergency purposes. So things that they hadn't planned for, you know, every so often you get a main break um, and it happens suddenly and it would be nice to have some money hanging around that you can use to deal with that uh, rather than having to go to the bank or, or whatever else. Um, so, so emergency capital is a second purpose for cash reserves. And then the third one is planning for that future big ticket item. So, you know, we know that we're going to replace the treatment plant in 30 years. Well, you know, let's have a conversation with the community and decide, you know what, let's at least save up 30% of the cost of that treatment plant so that when we get to that point, you know, we can uh, supplement the remaining amount with some borrowing, but we're not leaving the next generation with the full cost of that thing since we're the ones using the current treatment plant. We should reinvest and and put back into the system the wear and tear that we're placing on it. So that would be the kind of the third reason for the cash reserve. So a float to deal with annual cash flow issues, some emergency money, and some savings for future big ticket items. Yeah. So that, that leads into my next question, uh, that third category. Uh, when a new capital project comes up, um, you can uh, you can obviously issue debt, right, and and just bond fund the whole thing. Uh, you can pay as you go, or you can do some kind of mix, uh, or you can also use some of your cash reserves to help uh, offset the cost of borrowing and the pay as you go, right? So, so can you talk a little about uh, what what are the considerations when you're kind of performing that calculus? Yeah, that's again, that's very tricky. It depends on the community. You know, we we know some communities that do nothing but borrow. Every time they have big ticket items, they're straight to the bank or state revolving loans. Um, and they're constantly retiring debt and constantly taking on new debt. And that's the way they like to roll. Um, and so in that case, they carry very little cash reserves. They don't really need to because they rely on, on, on bank money to help them. 
And then we have communities that absolutely despise borrowing because they don't like that principal and interest, um, or, or perhaps they can't borrow for a variety of reasons. And, and in those cases, those communities tend to carry a lot more cash reserves because they need, you know, they need that money when the time comes. And there's any mix in between, and there's no really hard and fast rule as to what's the better um, of the two. You know, in the one case, if you're borrowing, well, then you're paying interest to the bank. If you're saving up, well, you're tying up ratepayer money in the bank when they could be spending that in the economy. And there's there's no right answer to which is best. But I'll, I'll say this. Um, communities who have been borrowing all along, who choose to switch to going to a pay-as-you-go and, and to build up a cash reserve, um, they are going to be shifting what we would call this intergenerational equity um, effect uh, because what they're doing now is they're shifting the burden from future generations back to the present generations, right? So we current ratepayers have been used to just paying off debt as we go. All of a sudden, we're going to be asked to not just pay off the current debts that we have, but now we're going to actually put in extra money in the bank to save up for that thing down the road. So, you know, my rates are going to go up quite a bit. On the other hand, communities that want to go the other way around, and, and this is where a lot of the communities are going because they're finding that they don't really have the cash to do the things they need, so they're having to go to the bank. So all along, they've been just, you know, merrily going along, paying cash for things, and all of a sudden, you know, big ticket items are coming up, and they're having to go to the bank, and so now the future generations are being saddled with that principal and interest payments for things that they're not even yet using because, you know, we're talking 20, 30 years out, say, um, and so in that case, what's happening is that community is shifting the burden to the future generations. And so intergenerational equity is a lot about changing the mix of whether you're going from a pay-as-you-go to borrowing or borrowing to pay-as-you-go. If you just keep things the way they've been all along, everything should be fine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I also think there's intergenerational um, equity issues be, because perhaps the rates are not set high enough at present. So they're, they're under recovering what they ought to be recovering in order to have that, you know, an, an equitable, um, uh, an equitable distribution of, of how the burden is placed upon the utility. That, I mean, that's, that's my thought because we, as it goes back to kind of what we talked about at the beginning, right. You know, the, they have, Typically, the elected officials who are setting the rates have a short-term horizon on what they're looking at, and so they're. If I if I was a betting man, I'd say they're more than likely they're under recovering what they ought to be recovering. Well, that's exactly right, and that's you know the, the big evidence of that is this is this infrastructure deficit that we have this trillion dollars or so is um, you know this is a, a whole bunch of infrastructure that's overdue for replacement, and the reason a lot of that's not getting replaced is because there's no money to do it. Um, and that's because the rates have been low or taxes have been too low and, and, and residents have been essentially being subsidized by the future generations because now um, communities are finding that they're having to borrow uh, to do all this work. And so now the future generations are going to be paying off this principal and interest um, all the while the rates are going to be going up. So, so what you're saying and what I'm saying are just uh, the same thing from looking at it from a couple different, two different lenses. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I've, I've heard of this buying it twice myth. Can you talk a little about that? Just explain what the buying it twice uh, myth is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we often get uh, 
um, residents coming to town hall meetings and so and and you know there's a presentation about well rates have to go up because we're going to be putting away and, and saving up for this big thing that we have to replace in 20 years and somebody will stand up and say well wait a minute we just built that treatment plant 10 years ago and and we're paying for it now um, why do we have to pay for it again so the easiest way of putting it is, is like this let's say you're building a new home in a subdivision now that home you're going to want you're going to want water along with other utilities but let's just talk about water and if there's no water service to that home then that home has a certain value to, to people um, but if that water if, if, if that home has water service to the curb and, and you know fresh potable water right to the tap the value of that property actually is, is increased right because if I'm looking for a new home I'd, I'd pay more if that home had water service than if it didn't because I'd probably have to turn around and drill a well or find some other means of getting my water so the cost of those that infrastructure the pipes and the service to the curb and all that that went into the ground well the, de the developers put that infrastructure in and they attach the cost of that to the value of the home when they sold it to me in the first place so I actually paid for those pipes in the first place but the value of those pipes are built into the value of my home meanwhile as time goes on and, and by the way all that infrastructure gets turned over to the municipality so it doesn't really belong directly to me I'm a shareholder in it because I live in the community but down the road or as time goes on I should be contributing to the ongoing wear and tear and, and the maintenance and the replacement of those pipes so that they can stay in good shape so that one day down the road when I go to sell my house I can sell it and reclaim that original cost that I paid for the initial installation of those pipes so the first payment for infrastructure is built into property value and and in theory I should get that back when I when I sell my home and, and move away but in the meantime, I need to keep that infrastructure in good shape, so I have to contribute towards the, the replacement of it. All right, so let's let's turn and look at um, a, another kind of financial planning uh, tool or uh, metric, which is the annual cost of sustainable ownership. Can you describe what that is? Yeah. So let's imagine again we've got something like a water utility, which has these infrequent but big-ticket items – that need to be replaced every 30 years pipes sometimes 80 to 100 years and if you looked at a 100 year time frame um, you could imagine this chart that's got all these peaks and valleys and and you know sometimes there's a lot of costs sometimes there's not there's not if you take the sum of all those costs over 100 years and you divide by 100 you get what you would call the average annual expenditure or we call it the average annual cost of sustainable ownership or put another way if a municipality or a utility endeavors to reinvest on average that amount that hundred year average every year then in theory it is staying on top of and, and, and maintaining a sustainable track over that long period of time because it's going to have sometimes it'll it'll if it's reinvesting let's call it a million dollars a year um, if it's reinvesting a million dollars a year because it's getting that amount of money from its rates but it's not spending a million because in those few years there's not a lot to do well that money is accumulating in that cash reserve that we talked about earlier and then in the next several years there's a few big projects that come along so that cash reserve comes down but overall as long as through the rates 
there's that average reinvestment every year, the annual cost of sustainable ownership, then again, in theory, you know, there's a, several nuances around that that would have to, you know, adjust that and, and we modeling would deal with that. But on average, uh, in theory, that, that utility is, is staying on top of things. That's why we call it the cost of sustainable ownership. Yeah. So can you talk about just, you know, not, not, we don't have to get down into, into the weeds, but talk about what some of those nuances are. I mean, how do you figure, what, what are some of the factors that someone needs to look at to determine that? Yeah. So uh, a model, like I just talked about, depends on some assumptions. So it depends on, you know, you think about all the assets that, that a utility may have, and it's probably well known when what, what the in-service year was for that, those assets, you know, when they were constructed or, or built or purchased. Um, but what's not fully known is, like we talked about earlier, is how, how long will those assets really last? You know, so we might put a 30 or a 40-year life on a treatment plant. But in reality, maybe that thing will last 45 years or 50 or 60. Um, and so when we do the initial modeling, we're making some assumptions. And ultimately, those assumptions aren't exactly right. They're probably in the ballpark, but they're not exactly right. So that's, that's one factor that, that you know, causes a little bit of that unknown. Um, the estimated replacement cost. So we're imagining what it's going to cost to replace that thing in 30 years. You know, we have pretty good information today based on the things – what things cost today, but we don't know what inflation is going to be like. We don't know what technology advancements might do to bring costs down, say. We don't know what new regulatory requirements might come about that might cause costs to go up. Uh, so that's another thing that makes that model, you know, not a perfect model. Um, the use of borrowing or not the use of borrowing. So if, if borrowing is going to be used, then there'll be some new interest costs that we may not be factoring in our model. Uh, access to grants. So sometimes uh, through some stroke of luck, we get some free money from the government, and that certainly brings our costs down. So those nuances will affect what that annual cost of sustainable ownership really is in, in, in the end. But we can at least get in the ballpark with some basic modeling. Yeah, yeah. So um, in, in my world where I go to the utility commission and have to uh, argue for increased rates. One of the things, you know, from a capital perspective that we plug in there with our municipal utilities under our statute here, get either depreciation or extensions and replacements, which I think is equivalent to your, the, the annual cost of sustainable ownership. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the term depreciation is often used. So, you know, the accountants, as we know, have to depreciate assets on the books. Um, and, and that figure, the depreciation figure, is often used as a, a, a replacement for what, what we're calling the annual cost of sustainable ownership. Right. And so um, now the danger with using depreciation, there's, there's two potential um, pitfalls with using that figure. One is the fact that depreciation is based on historic cost. So if I bought a, a storage tank in the 1970s and paid a million dollars for it, well, the accountants are going to depreciate that million dollars. Um, they're not going to increase that depreciation by any inflation amount over time. It's, it's that, that figure stays fixed at that million dollar. So that's one thing, that the accountant's depreciation figure is not inflated. It's based on historic cost. Um, the second thing is uh, accountants may not use the actual service life of the asset. They may use some other arbitrary number to do their straight line depreciation or whatever depreciation they're doing. So that, again, may distort um, the, 
the, the, the accuracy and the usefulness of that depreciation figure. So, you know, depreciation, the, the, the upside of it is it's, a, it's an easy figure to get at because every single business in North America has to report that. That's been a standard practice for a long, long time. So it's easy to get at, it's understood, it's accepted without question, really. Um, and so that's why it's been there. But it has not done us very well. Again, if we look at the evidence that why are we sitting with all this infrastructure deficit um, you know, today. In terms of depreciation, you know, you can tinker around with it. There, there are kind of, I think our default, uh, where I'm from is, um, uh, uh, 2%. Um, but you can prepare a depreciation study. Have you ever, have, have you looked at depreciation studies and how those can be, um, uh, I don't want to use the word manipulated, but how the, how the, the actual life of an asset can, can, affect how depreciation is recovered yeah so there's there's an organization i think they're based out of chicago uh called the engineering news record and they've kept track of construction industry inflation rates over time and so there is some methods you can use to take that depreciation and what i call it index it forward into today's dollars by accounting for all that inflation that has occurred over time. Um, that helps a little bit. Um, it doesn't help if the um, the time frames, the depreciation time frames that were used were not really reflective of the actual life of the assets. Right. You know, if, if pipes were put in the ground and they have a hundred year life and meanwhile, um, uh, accountants use 30 years to straight line depreciate that, then the depreciation will be higher than what it really is supposed to be. Um, so again, there's, I've not looked at those studies per se, but I know that there can be a number of different distortions on that figure. Right. And, 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 you know, yeah, there's ways of manipulating it that, you know, you can maybe get something that's closer to reality, but nothing gets closer to reality than sitting down with engineers and going, okay, let's list out all our assets Let's come up with some reasonable estimated service lives for them and estimated replacement values, and let's build an asset replacement schedule. And that is a much clearer and more defensible picture um, than trying to work with with that that depreciation figure. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's pivot from depreciation and kind of look toward what what I kind of called extensions and replacements, um, which I think is actual reinvestment. Can you talk about metrics that you look at for actual reinvestment in the system and and kind of um, what what annual contributions to that to that look like? Yeah, so um, and it, it really comes back to that annual cost of sustainable ownership. So you know, you looked at your asset replacement schedule. You get um, you know you you, you get a, a theoretical model of when all these things are going to need replacement over over a hundred years, and you arrive at that figure, the average annual cost of sustainable ownership. Um, to us, that really is the, the capital reinvestment figure. And or at least it's a starting point for having a conversation around that figure. Um, and, and so what, what needs to, there's some massaging that would need to, to be done. So for example, let's say you take a smaller system that is gonna be building, um, you know, having to replace its treatment plan in 50 years. Well, if you if you did the, the math on that annual cost of sustainable ownership, it might it might say, well, you need to reinvest a million dollars a year, and it could be that because there's not a lot of other stuff happening in between now and then, what would happen is that that utility 
would be accumulating a lot of money in its reserve it, just in time to, to buy that, that big ticket item 50 years from now. Now, that may be politically difficult to do. Again, it comes down to increasing rates and tying up ratepayer money in the bank just because of this big ticket item down the road. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people just don't like the idea of that. Why can't I keep that money in my own pockets and, and spend it the way I want to in the economy? Um, so future capital reinvestment, you know, even though we have these theoretical models based on the annual cost of sustainable ownership, they do need to have some political um, oversight on those. And so the, the, the actual, what we call the, the annual contribution for asset replacement or, or the, the actual amount that's being reinvested is, is typically different from that theoretical annual cost. And it, and it has a lot to do with the timing of things and, you know, the appetite for a community to, to save up um, compared to, you know, using borrowing down the road. Right, right. So, JP, you, we're quickly coming to the end of our time, and you've been absolutely fantastic. I've, I always learn something from my guests, and, and I really appreciate you taking time to speak with us today. Do you, b- Before we kind of sign off here, what's your leave-behind message? Kinda what, what do you want to leave the listeners with? Think long-term. <laughs> you know, if, if, if the listeners are dealing with infrastructure, um, infrastructure-based businesses, whether it's an electric utility or an airport, um, whatever it is that has big things that need replacing, uh, you know, infrequently, but the big expensive things, you got to think long term. And, you know, there's a variety of models out there. Ours is probably not the only one or the best one, but there's you got to think long term and you got to get the decision makers thinking long term, even if they're used to thinking short term because of, of the variety of reasons that, that come about with that. So think long term. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, JP, thank you again. You've been terrific. Uh, for those folks who want to find about find out more about you, find out more about Waterworth, where can they go to get that information? They can come to our website, so www.waterworth.net, and uh, they'll get to our landing page there. And we've got uh, um, we've got uh, some blogs, some white papers, some case studies. Um, they, you know, they can learn a lot through that, and they're also more than welcome to contact us for a demo of our software, and even just to have a chat like you and I have had today. We're happy to to spread the knowledge with with folks who want to learn more about this stuff. Awesome. Well, again, JP, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, David. Really appreciate it. All right. Bye now. Bye bye. Well, JP Jolie did a great job talking about the financial issues. Thank you so much for coming on, JP. Really appreciate it. Uh, you know, there are so many financial issues facing water utilities. I think it's important that uh, we kind of continue to learn more about them and understand the financial pressures uh, that go along with operating a water utility. So, JP, thanks for highlighting all that stuff for us. Uh, well, tell us what you thought about the show, about the interview. You can go to the show notes for this podcast, which is at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one five eight. Leave a comment on those show notes or email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me, which is at DTM1993, and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And I'd really appreciate it if you would give uh, the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever podcast directory you're listening on. That'd be greatly appreciated. As I said at the top of the show, I hope everyone who's celebrating Thanksgiving has a safe and happy Thanksgiving. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.
You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.